Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9 together. If you're in first through sixth grade, you can slip out at this time for our children's church. And I believe the fourth through sixth graders will be joining us uh, again here in just a little bit, so we won't let that be a distraction as we uh, pray for the Lord to limit distractions during our service this morning. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we've been focusing during this Advent season on the names that the titles for Jesus, the names given to him in prophecy that reveal to us his character and what he will do, his actions and his character. And so if you were to ask a Jew, who will Messiah be? Thus they could rightly turn to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and say, he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. We've been looking deeply into each one of those and this morning we'll look into the title of mighty God. Let's read verses 1 through 7 and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on the sermon this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, as we look into your word, would you grant us understanding that we may see? Would you grant us humility that we may believe? And would you grant us strength that we may obey as we see you as the mighty God? As we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The hymn that was just played for us so beautifully by Jessica and Becky is the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a beautiful reminder for us that the heart cry of every Jew in the Old Testament was that Messiah would come. It was the one they were looking for. It was the one that their heart cried for. And in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 tells us that he will be God dwelling with us, Emmanuel. And so as we look at the babe in the manger, the hymn cries out, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. Because Israel is moaning in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. And if we were to stop at verse 1 in that hymn, we we would perhaps come to the wrong conclusion that when Messiah would come, Messiah would come to free Israel from Roman oppression and thus establish the physical kingdom of God here on this earth. And so we come to realize that even though there are many who will look at the nativity scenes, maybe even place them in their yard, there are scores, millions who will sing Christmas carols, and yet when they come to that phrase, Emmanuel, perhaps they mean something different by that than you and I mean. 
And friends, it is important that we get Jesus right. And so we come to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 that reveals to us that the promised Messiah, this son, this child born in a manger, very specifically shall be called Mighty God. Mighty God. What I'd like to do for us this morning as we look at this phrase, Mighty God, is for us to understand what this phrase means correctly. That we may embrace Jesus for who he is, not for who we want him to be, or for who we wish he was. And so, I'd like to ask three questions of the text this morning. These three questions are as follows. What does mighty God mean? Secondly, is it necessary that this name, mighty God, mean that Jesus is truly God in all of his essence? For there are many errant forms of Christianity, we could call them cults perhaps, who would see Jesus as less than God and yet read the same Bible. And so I think that's a pertinent question for us to ask this morning. Does this phrase necessarily mean that Jesus is truly God in all of what it means to be God, in all of, its, in all of his essence? And then lastly, I'd like to ask the question, and we'll go through these briefly, what evidence did Jesus give that this is true in his life? Because if Jesus truly is the Son that's given, who is mighty God, surely we would see evidence of that in his life historically in the Gospels. And we'll breeze through those three, hopefully briefly, and then we'll get to why it's so important, what the implications are that Jesus is God. And that's perhaps a lot to take on this morning, but I think it will be beneficial for us as we breeze through these first three questions and then spend time on what it means for us. Let's look at that first question this morning. What does mighty God mean? When we look at Isaiah writing these words, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We looked at that last week, that he is uh, miraculous in his rule and in his plans. And then now, (coughs) this morning, mighty God. The word mighty means strong, but not just strong in a sense of of um, strength in, 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 in a muscular sense, but in a, military, in a military sense. That he is powerful and he is strong as a conqueror. In a sense that you would view one army against another army and say one army is mighty. They have military power and prowess. And so that's what Isaiah is seeking to communicate about this child who is born is that not just in a muscular sense of strong, but in a military sense of might. And then, of course, he is mighty God, divine, Elohim, that he is, a, that he is the divine God, the deity. Elohim can be used for other deities, Yahweh is God's proper name. Whenever in your Bibles you see the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is God's proper name, the God of the Bible. This is the general name of deity. And so we put this together and we recognize that this phrase explains to us that this child who is to be born, that Jesus is the all-conquering, all-powerful deity, combining it with last week, who rules and reigns with supreme wisdom and authority. And so last week we saw that wonderful counselor understanding his ruling and his wisdom, now that being combined with his military might, and and status of deity, we see that he accomplishes his wisdom. He accomplishes his rule with supreme power and authority as the mighty God. And that's what Isaiah wants you to see as we focus here on this phrase, mighty God. The idea and the emphasis of this son being God is that 
the Father did not send some sort of delegation to accomplish redemption from heaven, some sort of heavenly delegation, nor did he send angels such as the archangel Michael or Gabriel, the messenger. He did not send Michael or Gabriel to accomplish redemption. He sent himself, God. This also is meant to set apart Jesus from all the other prophets. And so even as we can think back to um, our recent messages through the Gospel of John and John chapter 4, what does the woman at the well say to Jesus? Jesus, she says, I perceive that you are a what? You are a prophet. And surely Jesus was the prophet that all the other prophets foreshadowed, but he was greater than Elijah. He was greater than Isaiah. He was greater than Ezekiel. And so it sets him apart of not saying a mighty prophet, but mighty God. So that's what mighty God means, to to, to set that apart specifically in what I believe Isaiah is emphasizing with his words here. But we need to ask the question, Must this phrase mean that Jesus truly in his nature is the very essence of God? In my reading and studying this week, I found several um, people who would suggest that this title for Jesus did not overtly teach his deity. For instance, you have names of people who have um, the name of God wrapped up in their name. So I would give for you the instance of Ezekiel, and that El referring to Elohim. And so God's prophet Ezekiel has in his name also a reference to God. And there would some who would say, well, no, this does not, this does not, teach us that Jesus in his nature and in his essence was everything that it means to be God, but it simply points to the fact that his name would be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And so his name would be Jesus and would have God's name in it. Is that the case? I think this is a very relevant question for you, for you will have people who come knock on your door attempting to share Um, a, a false gospel with you who would hold this view. We find this answer for us just a little further on in our reading. I'd ask you to look at Isaiah chapter 10 with me, and we'll begin reading in verse 20, because we need to ask the question, how else does Isaiah use this? Term. How else does Isaiah use this phrase? What is on his mind as he uses this term, mighty God? And direct your attention down to verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So who is, God, is Isaiah referring to at the end of chapter 20? You will see that word LORD in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Who is Isaiah referring to? He's referring to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Scripture, the God of the Bible. Verse 21. A remnant will return... A remnant of Jacob to, he's summarizing verse 20, who will they return to? The mighty God. Same phrase. And so in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 21, Isaiah tells us that the mighty God is Yahweh himself, the God of the Bible. And thus, in Isaiah chapter 9, he uses that phrase, that exact same phrase, to say the son who is given, the child who is born, will be called the mighty God. He will be called Yahweh. He will be called the God of gods. And so Isaiah leaves no doubt in our minds that this child will be God himself. We could also look to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, verses 18 and 19. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great 
and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Once again, mighty God, referring to the Lord of hosts, Yahweh in Scripture. And of course, in the New Testament, we would find it replete with texts about the deity of Christ, namely Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, if you know the verse, of our great God and Savior. Who is it? Jesus Christ. And so there is no doubt in our minds as we look at Scripture that Isaiah, when he uses this name, Mighty God, is not foreshadowing the name of Jesus in that Jesus would have the name of God as part of his name, but that in his character, he would be the very essence and being of God and nothing short of that. If you're visiting this morning and you have been told that the Bible never says that Jesus is God, friend, you have been lied to. For we look to the clear pages of Scripture and its teaching, and the Bible is not silent on this issue, and this is a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. Jesus Christ is mighty God. Without that, you have no Christianity. Without that, you have a faulty foundation on which you can build only a false theology and a false religion. For Jesus is the mighty God in every essence of what that means. Period. Full stop. So if that were if that is true, we, we, we say that as a first class conditional meaning since that is true, we would see evidences in Jesus' life historically of him holding this nature of God. And so I'd like to give you these evidences. Um, I believe in three categories. Yes, I'll give you three categories as we look at the evidences of Jesus possessing the very nature of God. The first category that we would see is miracles as they fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 35 says the following, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you speaking to those who were wondering whether or not God would ever appear. Listen to Isaiah 35.5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so we have these four categories of miracles that will be performed all by one person, and that one person, through these miracles, will give evidence that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. And so we have Mark chapter 10 in Blind Bartimaeus, one of my absolute favorite stories in all the Gospels. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And blind Bartimaeus said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The blind now see. In Mark chapter 7, we see the ears of the deaf being opened. They brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him and take him aside from the crowd. He put his fingers in his ears, and spitting touched his tongue, emphasizing that he had the power from God in that culture. That's what he's communicating. And he looked up to heaven and said, Ephrathah, which is be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released. And anybody who knew Isaiah chapter 35, they should start putting together the pieces here. Wait a minute. Here's a deaf man who can now hear. Here's a man who could not speak, who, could now, who can now speak. Here's a blind man who can now see. And then in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 12, he said to the, said to the paralytic, remember the story where they're trying to get this man to Jesus and the crowds are pressing in and they can't get into the house. So what do they do? They do a little construction project on the house so they can get their friend to Jesus and they literally unroof the roof and they let their friend down 
and the man comes on the, uh, on, on the, you know, on, on the pallet there or, or the stretcher as they let, let him down. I would have loved to see how they did that. I mean, they didn't come ready to do this. So how exactly did that work? I have no idea, but they were desperate because they had faith. And as Jesus looks at this paralytic, he says, I say to you, pick up your head, pick up your bed, sorry, not your head. That's the medication speaking. (laughs) Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God. Listen to what they said. We've never seen anything like this. You know what happens when somebody sees Christ for the first time? Do you know what happens as our dear brother uh, Ryan prayed this morning as they see the love of Christ evidenced in us? Do you know what happens when people see Jesus? They say, I've never seen anything like this. I've seen something else. I've seen perhaps a yoke of of the law placed on someone's shoulders that is unbearable that they must keep in order to get to heaven and it does nothing but crush them for they cannot keep it or make them proud because they think they can. I've seen emotionalism. I've seen shallow worship. But I've never seen this. And so when we see the eyes of the blind open, the ears of the deaf, the deaf unstopped and the mute speaking, and when we see the lame man walking, we see the evidence of Jesus as Messiah, as mighty God. Friend, have you ever, you ever doubted your faith? You know, it's, it's natural to doubt, for we have a reasonable faith, and thus we can look with reason upon the scriptures and upon God. I sat with a dear girl this week and witnessing to her, and a question that she asked was, if I accept the truth of scripture, what, what if I doubt? Where do I go then? Will I doubt? Have you ever found yourself doubting? Pastor, how can you say it's natural to doubt? Well, because John the Baptist did. John the Baptist, in a moment of of sorrow and grief, in a moment of emotional turmoil. If you have your Bible with you and you'd like to turn there, turn to Luke chapter 7. I think this will be encouraging for you this morning. Because... Friends, we possess a reasonable faith. Meaning that you cannot reason yourself to faith. But God has not called you to a blind faith. And thus, apologetics serves both to help us understand the reasonableness and the truth of Scripture, but can never be used to argue someone into faith. And the evidence that Jesus fulfills this prophecy and is mighty God is a reasonable evidence that we have before us. And examining this evidence in a reasonable way gives us a confidence in our faith. Look at Luke chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 18. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him. And John, who's sitting in prison, never to leave prison, for he is to be executed, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus, are, are are, are, are you the Messiah? Are you sure? Can I be confident? I mean, I'm about, I have my life on the line. I'm about to be killed. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another in that hour? In that hour, what did Jesus do? He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. What does he tell him? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. 
The deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, blessed is the one who embraces me as Isaiah 35 prophesies. Jesus offers reasonable evidence. And friend, if you are in, because of perhaps some emotional turmoil or or some, uh, maybe some impediments to your Christian walk, if you find yourself doubting. Do not be ashamed to go to a dear brother or sister in Christ and say, will you comfort me during this time? Because that's what John the Baptist did. And if John the Baptist feels comfortable seeking information to find a reasonableness to his faith, you should as well. And so we have pastors who would love to sit with you and open up scripture and give you a reasonableness to your faith. And so an evidence that Jesus gives and even comforts John the Baptist's heart with is that he is the miraculous healer in Isaiah chapter 35. Another evidence that he gives is that he offers forgiveness of sins. I'd like you to look. You don't, ha- you don't have to turn there. Some of you may want to write these down and turn back and forth. I don't normally have you flipping back and forth on a Sunday morning, but Mark chapter 2 gives us this concept when the paralytic comes down. They came bringing a paralytic. He, when Jesus saw their faith, what does he say to the paralytic before he heals? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And verse 6 of Mark chapter 2 says, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Listen to the next phrase. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so an evidence that Jesus gives of his status as the mighty God is looking at the sinner who comes in faith and saying, your sins are forgiven. And friend, when you come to Jesus as the mighty God, it's that same pronouncement on your life. You come in faith, turning from your sins, turning to him by faith alone, in Jesus Christ, by grace alone, he calls out to you and he says, your sins are forgiven because he is the mighty God. And he gives evidence of that. Perhaps the greatest evidence that's given is this third category, though, that many um, perhaps read through and don't recognize the importance of it. And it's, again, looking to Mark chapter 1 as Mark is proving that Jesus is the suffering servant who was prophesied in the Old Testament. Listen to this and see if you can hear the evidence here. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered into the synagogue, and he was teaching. Verse 22 of Mark chapter 1. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. You know, an evidence of Jesus as the mighty God is that when he opened up the scriptures, he taught in a different way. Can you imagine sitting in the synagogue and having the very word of God read the word of God? And to listen to the divine voice as he speaks the very word of God that he wrote. And those listening knew the difference. For there were many scribes who would stand and would read and would explain what it meant. And would perhaps give ideas and concepts of what was happening here in the passage and maybe even wrongly interpret to bind the conscience and the hearts of the people to their own authority. And yet Jesus comes and he stands in the synagogue and he opens the word of God and people go, there's something different about that. For he spoke with authority. And all of these are evidences and proofs that Jesus is the mighty God. He is the son who's given. He is the child who's born, who possesses the very nature of God in everything that that means. The very essence of God. Why would we 
spend so much time on this concept. Because the scriptural teaching and evidence is irrefutable and undeniable. I'd like to read you a short paragraph from the great book, Mere Christianity, by C.S. Lewis. If you've not read that, I highly recommend it as a read over the Christmas break, as it just gives you a, a, an easy-to-read, down-to-earth argument for the Christian faith. Here's what he says. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus says would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's great writing. There is no other option. You could summarize this argument by saying either Jesus is Lord, he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. But he cannot just be a good man for what he claimed to be and what he evidenced. And so we embrace him as Lord. The mighty God. And so we come to where we will spend the rest of our time this morning and briefly answer the question, so what? So what does this mean for me? I think it is interesting and necessary for us to ask that question this morning because I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 where we began. And I'd like you to look at verse 6 and I'd like you to notice two words which is the thrust of this verse, if not the entire passage. There are two words that are repeated, repeated for emphasis, repeated so that you will notice them and you will hold them closely, and also repeated for your comfort this morning. Four were the next two words. To us. A child is born. What are the next two words? To us. A son is given. Jesus was not born of Mary into an abstract setting. He was not just some general gift given. He was given to a specific people. I think it's very important because it brings so much comfort, friend, because it means that gift is personal. It means that that gift is given to you. If you're here and you're a Christian, that phrase to us means to you. It means to me. It means to us as God's people. And so we look at this phrase, to us a son is given. And you can walk by the manger scene and we don't put something like this for it just to be pretty, but for you to look at that at the babe in a manger and to say, to us. To us. And so in my meditations this week, I would like to give you four words that I think would encapsulate the implications of mighty God being a child and a son given to you. I'm going to give you these words up front so that you can write them down. Some of you love to take notes, and I don't want you to be distracted. And so I'm going to give you these four words, and then we're just going to sit back 
and we're going to worship for a minute, okay? The four words are love, power, mediator, and example, okay? Love, power, mediator, and example. And we could think of a hundred more. But we're going to categorize our our pause and our, our, our worship as we look at this mighty God in a fragile infant during this season and think of those four words in the next few brief minutes. Love, power, mediator, example. Let's think about love for a minute. My goal in this, by the way, sorry, I started, I'm going to back up. Uh, My goal in this is so that when you see a picture, even as we have on our PowerPoint screen, or a child in a manger, or a card, that you would have more than shallow emotional joy and happiness in your heart, but that it would remind you to worship. That's why we're doing this, okay? Mighty God, love we see the Father's love by looking at Jesus. Some have tried to pit this loving Jesus in the New Testament against a wrathful, vengeful God in the Old Testament. And yet, the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 would say that he is the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of the glory of God. And if you want to see the Father, Jesus says, look at me. For it is through the person of Jesus that we see God. It's it's what we see in the Father. It's the love of God displayed. For God has so much love for fallen humanity that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For in Jesus we see the love of the Father when we look at him. When we look at the babe, we see God loving and giving. We see the Father's love and passion for the outcasts of society when we see Jesus among the outcasts. When we see the Pharisees on the outside looking in and judging him for being among the sinners and we see Jesus wading in to the filth to give the message of salvation repent and believe so we see the love of the father for every person we see the father by seeing jesus we also see the love demonstrated of god by recognizing that god does not hold himself at arm's length that god does not give the cold shoulder when sinned against That God did not send his son to live in some castle on a hill or to live some sort of separate life than all of humanity. But we see the love of God displayed in that he sent a son to live in the world among fallen humanity to be one of us. The very presence of God is given to you and to me. And the very access to the Father is found through Jesus. And that the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple was was sequestered there by God himself. So that no one could enter into the Holy of Holies, but the high priest once a year could enter into the presence of God. And he enters through fear and trembling. And he brings with him the blood of the covenant as it's sprinkled there on the mercy seat. And the very presence of God is held at arm's length. But when Jesus comes, and when Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. That veil that separated the presence of God from his people. And God is not held at arm's length anymore, my friend. And so you enter into God's presence boldly because Jesus, the mighty God, has demonstrated the love of God. I'd like to also 
show you one more aspect of love that God gives us, one perhaps you have not thought about, but one that we sing about that I think is important, especially in the age in which we live, is that through the incarnation of Jesus, the mighty God becoming flesh, Jesus gives value to human life. Listen to the hymn, O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Jesus didn't come as an angel. He didn't come as a ferocious beast or as any other part of creation than mankind. And so he puts his stamp of worth on the image of God on this earth. You say, why is that so important? Because our society would, it, our society is so confused when it comes to the concept of physical being right now. And Jesus has come to remind us that he didn't come as a disembodied spirit. He shows us that the body and the soul are meant to pair together perfectly in every way and is valuable to God. And that his plan is for us to live with him bodily. That our body would be resurrected in heaven. That we're not going to live forever as some disembodied spirits. That God's plan is bodily worship for all of eternity with Jesus who has a physical body right now in heaven. That it gives value to that, friend. That if we're not careful, we buy into this platonic view of Christianity, meaning that what's immaterial is more valuable than what's material, and that somehow the immaterial self can define the material self. And Jesus being born in a human body speaks against that. That the body and soul are one. Our bodies have great worth as they are created in the image of God and belong to God and we must treat them as such. The implications of this are huge, specifically in this day and age. The love of God displayed through Jesus, the mighty God, becoming man. Let's look at the power of God displayed. Power. Jesus, because he is mighty God, has the power to save you. Man cannot offer salvation. Man cannot, cannot give you forgiveness of sins. You cannot go to any human and be granted forgiveness or absolution of sins. You must only go to God as you are a kingdom and priests, as you are priests before God. He possesses all the power of God because he is God. His power is unmatched and unrivaled. As truly God, Jesus in his power cancels your debt of sin. He reconciles you from being alienated from the Father. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, peace on earth, mercy mild. Finish it with me. God and sinners, what? Reconciled through the mighty God, Jesus Christ. The only person who can reconcile you to God is God himself. And thus, Jesus has the power to save you. Not only does he have the power to save you, but he possesses all the power and will one day return to conquer all sin. Friends, this power, this rescuing power given to you spiritually at the moment of salvation 
will one day be brought to bear physically on this earth, and that's what the hymn Joy to the World is about. Believe it or not, Joy to the World, we, we see this as a, as a Christmas hymn, and thus it is, and as we welcome the king, but, but the hymn Joy to the World was actually written about the second coming of Christ. Listen to these words. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's talking about the second coming. And so this Jesus, this mighty God, born in a manger, will one day return. And John gives us this beautiful picture in Revelation. Listen carefully as I read Revelation 19 as he sees what is to come. Then I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, that's us, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which with to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, the mighty God, friends. Jesus, who through his power saves you, forgives your sins, will one day return and you will find yourself either with the armies of heaven or gathered with the armies of this earth. And if you choose not to bow your knee while you were alive here to your Lord and King by choice and by grace, you will bow then by force. He is the mighty God who carries with him the power to return and conquer sin. And what a day that will be, joy to the world. In fact, I kind of hope as we come with him, we're singing that hymn. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Quickly, mediator, mediator. The mighty God becoming man means that he knows your pain and struggles. God, listen carefully, God has experienced this broken world. He did not have to, but he did. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows this by experience. We have a God in heaven who when you suffer can understand because he can reply, I've been there. Even to the point of a painful death. I heard recently that one third of us, I don't mean to be morbid, but one third of us will die in a way that is immediate and two-thirds of us, statistically, will know our death is coming. And my dear friend, when you, brother or sister, see heaven, and yet between you and heaven lies the painful passage of the River Jordan, may you be comforted that the mighty God has already waded those waters before you. And that when you call out to him for grace, you will find one who is there 
with mercy and grace and hope. And you will find a mediator who will carry your requests to the Father as one who has experienced your pain. And the last word that we have is example. Example. He is our perfect example of holiness. He lived the perfect life, fully and truly man in every sense of the term. Living out holiness through fervent prayer and complete faith. And friends, you have those same tools at your disposal. And thus, when you are tempted, you see the example of Jesus who in fervent prayer and full faith calls out to the Father and believes the truth. And thus, you can find victory in your life. Will you every time? No. But can you? Yes. Yes, you can. And what a joy to follow our Savior's example of holiness. And lastly, the example of perseverance to the end. Perseverance to the end. As we see this baby lying in a manger, I, see that I say this phrase often, so perhaps we can remember it often, that he is born in a manger in the shadow of a cross. For he's born for that purpose. And as we see this baby lying in a manger in the shadow of the cross, we are reminded of the obedience of Christ through great difficulty and through great pain and through great struggle and through great emotional turmoil as he perseveres with the phrase, not my will, but yours be done. And as he calls out in these moments of suffering, and he obeys to the point of death, even, Paul tells the church at Philippi, even the death of the cross, that we find Jesus as our example. And so, friend, in this Christmas season, if your life is filled with struggle, may Jesus be your example of perseverance through struggle, of joy, finding joy in God's plan in the midst of your pain. And may you see this child as the mighty God. May that be our hope in this season of Advent. Lord, we thank you for the clear scripture. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for helping us see the truth of scripture and appropriating it to our own hearts. May we believe it and may we worship in this and be thankful 